You're listening to Sibling Talk with Mary Jo Tumare and John Paulette. Commentary from a progressive point of view. Hello, I'm John Paulette. And I'm Mary Jo Tumare. Mary, uh, the president has announced kind of his plans or the task force plans or criterion for opening up. I mean, one question, I guess, uh, that comes up is this whole question of uh, does he have the power of the governors? But anymore, that just doesn't even seem all that relevant to me, because now we're really at the point of wondering what happens if open up the economy? Is it too soon, too late? How are you reacting to all of that? I mean, it's just such an unknown. And to give Trump credit, which I don't do very often, I do understand the concern about staying locked down for too long and how you do damage the economy that cannot be undone. And, and is it overreacting by keeping absolutely everybody home? On the other hand, the medical people are saying, yeah, you need to keep people home longer. So I think um, without understanding completely everything they want to do, I think having a staged approach makes sense. What doesn't seem to make sense is the thinking that the virus is somehow going to respect state borders because it doesn't work that way. It, no, it doesn't. But you, a point you brought up there has really been on my mind. Uh, I'm a high school teacher. I've been an educator really beginning in 1972, although there was some period away there. So the effects of this on education are particularly close, close to me. And I read now in the article in the New York Times that some educators dealing with grade school kids are estimating that there will be a 70%, 70% loss in reading skill. Now, we know this is probably true because we know because of our bizarre uh, summer vacation program, the kids go through a loss in three months, two months during the summer. So how much more loss do they go through if we continue to hold them out of school or, or this fall? And that uh, loss never gets made up, never gets made up. And so we have substantially affected the education of children. And I, I bring this up because you mentioned the effects on the economy. I absolutely agree with all those, but what are the effects on the kids and a whole generation as well. Absolutely, that's a great point. I mean, so there's so many pieces to what's, what are the long-term effects, what's actually happening to people as a result of the stay-at-home orders. And so much of which we just don't know. And, you know, you have all these young people who are potentially working from home, but are they really working? And what effect is that having on their careers? So there's just a lot of that. So I, I do think that the pressure to get things started again 
is immense and is legitimate. So I don't want to delegitimize that. On the other hand, if you open too soon, you're right back at it. And that balance seems very, very difficult. And I mean, you're in Illinois, so the chances that you open up before the end of the school year, since your, your peak is just coming, seems pretty small to me. We're in Ohio, and we actually have not had a peak, right? Because of what we did, things are very level. So people are starting to say, should you send the kids back to school for May, or at least the end of May through June? And my gut tells me, why? Why bother? Well, keep it going for another six to eight weeks, as painful as that is, and just eradicate to the extent you can. I don't know. I think it's very difficult situation. Well, it's very difficult. Now I'm going to complicate it a little bit more. Uh, I teach at a selective private school. I, I would not call it elite in terms of all the demographics, although we have kids from wealthy families, we also have kids from very poor families. But having said that, it nevertheless has a kind of educationally elite quality. We think we're doing pretty well with the online learning. Uh, we surveyed the students. This is not the only barometer of things, but the students by almost 90% felt that they were getting as good or better in education as they did when they were in the classroom. Pretty stunning number. But I compare that with a close friend of mine who uh, tells me that it, she's recently retired from a very large public school, very good in its upper group, but with a lot of lower income kids. And they're estimating that 40% of their students are not participating at all. They're not, not even the slightest, not even the fiction of doing it. I raise all this, that's a long story to say, I wonder if e-learning and distance learning for many students is just a fiction. It's just to make us feel good that we're all in there. And maybe it's just effective for, uh, I don't know if I want to say the wealthiest, but the most privileged of us. Or, Does that make sense at all? Yeah, or the most education-oriented. Education so you can right. have kids who are not coming from wealthy homes whose parents are very education-oriented, and they're going to do fine because you're going to... Part of education is babysitting is not exactly the right word, but it is adult pressure to get things done, to teach kids how to be responsible and do your work. And it, to use a David Brooks, I don't know if you remember this book he wrote, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, about deferred gratification, meaning if you could teach your kids one thing to help with their success, you would teach them deferred gratification. And that's what education is. You know, you're going to learn this today because tomorrow it's going to benefit you. Mm -hmm. And without adults to continue to remind kids that your screen time can wait while you do your work, how do you get things done? So you have all these parents, even the ones that are lucky enough to be working from home, having to be the teacher in a sense to maintain an educational environment 
to get the work done that needs to be done that's grade appropriate. I think it's super complex and I think you're right. The experiment of e-learning for a large percentage of kids is probably a failure. I have one other thing I have to raise to you and it relates to opening up and, and it's kind of a painful topic. You know, we hear about today uh, the growing problems in nursing homes and now this tragic case in New Jersey of a great number of deaths uh, going on there. And you and I share uh, the experience. Our mom died not quite a, a year ago. She was in a nursing home. Uh, she had Alzheimer's. She was going through a very difficult time. I have thought a lot today what would I do if mom were still alive and she was in a nursing home? Do, do we go out and get her and bring her home? Do we check into what kind of level of care they're giving her? I got to tell you the truth. I don't know the answer to that question. I know, but it was funny when all this started, our younger sister, who was mom's like main caregiver, or main ad medical advocate is the way I would say it. She yeah. told me... At, this is a month ago. I would have gone there. I don't care if I would have they would have arrested me. I would have gone in there and taken her out. Of course, that meant bringing her to my house. So I. Yeah. <laughs> of course. The thing is that I, you have to be safer in someone's home than you, even with a level of care that's less than you're getting in a nursing home, because nursing their petri dishes aren't they of just all those people who's coming in and bringing the virus is probably the workers who are making 10 bucks an hour and who can't afford to lose their jobs. It's heartbreaking. I think I have cried more by watching those stories than any other thing that I've watched. And that's because it's personal to us. It is. And you know what I cried the most today was seeing video of people standing outside the window, uh, calling in to them or FaceTiming or waving them in. And I just think about how confused mom would have been right. about that. She, she just would not have understood. And my, my heart, my compassion, I don't know the right word, goes out because there are so many people in the country who are facing this right now. And I, I just, I, I totally know how they feel. Yeah, me too. So... Listen, I have one more news update. This is the uh, Trappist Monastery Abbey update from Gethsemane in Kentucky. And I got to point out, you do not get news about what's happening on the inside of monasteries just everywhere. That's why you have to listen to sibling <laughs> talk. And, and I, I, through reasons I can tell later, uh, I am in close touch with one of the brothers, he's my age, so he's been uh, a Trappist monk for 50 years, I guess almost 50 years, Brother Luke. And I hear from Brother Luke today that despite the fact that it's a lot of very old men living together in tight quarters, they still do not even have one case, uh, which I think is pretty incredible. And Luke also told me that the nature of being a Trappist is for the last thousand years, They've been really good at self-isolating. That's exactly. They're perfect. They're perfect. <laughs> they and all the artistic uh, folks. 
Absolutely right. Listen, Mary, a lot of tough topics today and a lot more to digest. So I will talk to you tomorrow. All right. Bye, John. Bye.